You are listening to The Current Podcast, the official podcast of UC San Diego's IT Services Department. I'm your host, Miguel Rodriguez. Today is Wednesday, August 4th. Don't forget that the deadline to apply for a Lean Six Sigma Green or Yellow Belt Scholarship is next Thursday, August 12th. A notice is posted on the homepage of Blink, and if it's gone by the time you hear this, get the to osi.ucsd.edu and search Scholarship. There's another big event next week that might interest you. On Wednesday the 11th is the Employee Vaccine Mandate Town Hall at 1 p.m. Visit Return to Learn website to get registered for that. And finally, did you change your AD password yet? I refer you all back to yesterday's department-wide email from Mike Korn. Soon enough, all faculty and staff will be required to change their AD passwords to meet tighter security rules. Help out Mike and the team by changing your AD password now and let them know if you encounter any difficulties on the way so they can troubleshoot issues big and small before the campus rollout. And that's enough for me. Joining us again on the pod today is our Director of Enterprise Architecture and Infrastructure, Brian DeMell. This is Mark Herzberger. Today I'm joined by Brian DeMell, our Executive Director for Enterprise Architecture and Infrastructure. Brian, welcome back to the pod. How are you? I'm good, Mark. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for asking. Uh, let's start at the top. What is your overview description of enterprise architecture and infrastructure? And what specifically is architecture and what specifically is infrastructure? So the enterprise architecture and infrastructure group um, is composed obviously of a group of enterprise architects. And then on the infrastructure side, that includes our network and voice services team our computing and cloud infrastructure team and our data and integration services group. So starting on the infrastructure side, you know, the network and voice services, of course, they provide the campus uh, network services, which includes wired and wireless networking in support of the mission of the university. And on the uh, infrastructure side, I mean, on the cloud and computing infrastructure group, that is the team that manages our cloud program, uh, use of public cloud resources such as Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud Platform, uh, Microsoft Azure, uh, IBM, and some others. They're also the team that is comprised of a lot of what we would traditionally think of as sysadmins that um, manage our computing resources, both what we have remaining on premises as well as cloud. And this includes software patching, upgrading, uh, troubleshooting when there are problems, et cetera. Uh, and our data and integration services group, uh, they are managing our data platforms, essentially our data movement platforms that are moving data from one source to a destination. This is in support of analytics, uh, downstream data consumption, 
and other internal data movement processes. Some of this goes to external vendors. Some of this goes just between our own systems. That group also manages our um, API platform. Um, our APIs provide data access to other systems um, to get up-to-date and timely data uh, for other transactional systems. Um, and then I forgot in the, in the cloud and computing infrastructure group, that also includes all of our uh, computer labs, uh, all the software that is in support of instruction. So that group works closely with um, my colleague Valerie Polichar's group and the faculty and providing um, software onto lab machines as well as into our relatively newly created cloud labs environment, um, which was accelerated as part of our COVID exile last year. So that's kind of the, the gamut on the on the infrastructure side. Now the enterprise architects, uh, they are responsible to work kind of across the organization and to ensure the alignment of technology and technology choices with current architecture as well as future state architectures that we're planning. So we try to work with our various groups to help make transitions to innovate and make changes. Our view of enterprise architecture is slightly different than other, other areas I've seen and other organizations I've seen. Um, some enterprise architects, their work is uh, much more about creating artifacts and distributing artifacts and that our group is a bit more bolted to the operations. So the architects will go into operational groups and help kind of bridge silos that we have in the organization, help get teams together. They also, I do, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of both the, the head of that team as well as participate in that team. I do um, contract negotiations, contract reviews. You know, we do vendor management things um, at times. We do also review project charters on inception to determine the level of enterprise architecture need and involvement for a specific effort. And um, in some cases, for instance, the big ESR program, uh, we were heavily involved in designing and uh, trying and helping the organization move into the new kind of ESR world. With all these services and hundreds of employees, how do you manage it all? Well, I'm very lucky. I have a great set of staff. I have some excellent uh, managers and supervisors uh, that are quite good at what they do. The EA team I have is also excellent. Uh, and so, you know, it's, uh, of course, I of course have difficulty trying to get down into the details and weeds because that of course kind of ties me up. Um, and I am, you know, involved in uh, many things, both internal to ITS, as well as connected with other of the operational units on campus. So I get called regularly by other groups that come consult with them and provide some recommendations on technologies or try to help them 
uh, solve problems with whatever tech we have or even source technology for them for whatever their needs are. I wanted to ask you about the campus phone network. And uh, a lot of us have been working at home for over a year, uh, have not been using our desk phones such that people even had them. So, you know, in, in a post-COVID world, in a, in a 2022 work environment, whatever, what, what is the future of a kind of a campus traditional phone network or next generation phone ne network for that matter? You know, we've, the, the, the voice group has been looking at uh, various other potential technologies to provide, I would, you know, enhanced services, but also with the fact that there's a large number of our staff that will be in a fairly heavily remote, you know, I mean, kind of hybrid, but very heavily remote situation um, for tools that we could use to be able to uh, provide a more, you know, could call it office-like experience with regard to voice services. So I can provide just a couple, you know, examples. So um, it was a couple months ago, I got called by an assistant dean because they have a situation where, you know, the they've got a number of administrative staff that are looking for ways of being able to have their home office voice service look like it's just them sitting at their desk on campus. And so we, uh, the, the voice team, um, which is uh, led by Veronica Garcia, they've had been for quite a while uh, testing some tools, one from Mitel, which is our, our PBX vendor um, and has been for a while. That is a software-based phone that gets loaded on your computer and you can, you essentially port your office phone number to your computer at home. And so if it rings, it rings on your phone, on your computer, you can conduct a call like that. Um, another one is we've had a number of groups that have wanted to be able to have like caller ID at their home office, because currently if you forward your voice number from campus to your cell phone, which I do, right? I've got it. When it rings on your cell phone, you don't get, you don't get to find out who it is. It just looks like your, your desk phone is calling you. And so um, the, this uh, it's called my collab pretty close to being able to have it offered as a service. We're actually waiting for our financial analysis office and the CFO office to approve a recharge rate for us to be able to provide licensing for that. Another option, which we've considered, we have it deployed in a very tight, tightly controlled environment right now is there's a Cisco device that you can plug into your home network and then you can plug in a VoIP phone uh, handset and use a handset at your house. And if your office phone rings, it just rings at your house as if you're sitting in your office. More recently, that same team, they upgraded our um, old call center software, which was branded under Mitel as Solidus. But however, they upgraded the call center software. Um, the older version had some severe limitations. The new one, which they've migrated all of our existing customers from the old version to the new version has been very successful. The feedback I've, I've received from that team is that everybody is extremely happy with it. And so we will continue to sort of stay on 
on top of those and to try to provide better uh, voice services, especially for our new kind of hybrid uh, environment. When fall quarter resumes, we're going to have a bunch more staff and tens of thousands of students, you know, back on campus if everything goes well. Uh, how ready is the Wi-Fi network to have a bunch of users again all of a sudden? And what, what are some upgrades uh, for the Wi-Fi network that have been implemented in recent months? During COVID, because of the remote instruction, the dorm rooms then became an extension of the classroom in that the students that were living on campus needed to take their courses from their dorm rooms. So we invested very heavily. Um, it was a year ago. So last summer, we were, uh, the, the networking team um, did uh, probably a year and a half to two years worth of upgrade work in a few of the dorms in about like three or four months uh, to get ready. Now, you know, we, we had some hiccups, of course, and of course we'd rushed that because we needed to get ready for the fall quarter. And so we have this whole past academic year and we're still doing it to a certain degree, had to kind of go back in and do some modifications, changes to what we initially deployed. Uh, there were some cabling issues in a couple of the dorms that are getting rectified this summer. Um, and we will continue to be looking at ways to, to, to make sure that the Wi-Fi within the dorms is as close to the same level of service as we have throughout the rest of the campus. Uh, but I, I, that, that was like a particular pain point though, wasn't it? What dorm network and Wi-Fi pre-COVID at least? Yeah, so pre-COVID, you know, there was no guarantee that there was Wi-Fi everywhere in the dorms, right? This was, you know, housing and dining made uh, specific decisions because that wasn't the locus of instruction, mm -hmm. right? So there were there were either, depending on the, on the age of the dorm, there was either a wired port in the room that the students could use, or in some of the newer buildings, there was more Wi-Fi um, available. However, in the older ones with the some with, which started with just wired ports, uh, the Wi-Fi was only deployed within the sort of shared like community spaces. And so that wouldn't be uh, sufficient to be able to allow somebody to be in their room in a more quiet space to be able to do their work. So we greatly expanded the number of APs. Of course, we had issues with some of the older buildings in terms of older cabling and what what we could actually pull off. So the group was, you know, quite creative. And this was a, you know, cross-organizational, cross-team effort. And I have to say that the teams that were involved in making this happen um, did a phenomenal job um, of collaborating and getting this done. One, one more tech question. Uh, what does it mean to employ a cloud-first strategy at UC San Diego, and how far uh, along are we in that endeavor? Um, well, so when ESR started, you know, when Vince arrived, we made the decision to go cloud-first, right? Um, so cloud-first does not mean cloud only. Okay. It just means that whenever we are looking to deploy new technology or uh, rehabilitate older technology, we would look for a 
cloud platform initially. So cloud first would mean, you know, we would look for SaaS first. We would look for software as a service where we are just, you know, licensing or paying a subscription fee to a vendor. Um, we do not have any responsibility for the infrastructure, for the compute, et cetera. At that point, we are just the user of a managed by the vendor. If the specific vendor does not have a SaaS offering, in some cases, they will have a hosted offering, which is in their data center still, and they host it. Um, it's not a true software as a service sort of multi-tenant technology. It's just a hosted platform that we would pay a fee for that. Um, also, you know, for our, the ESR program, of course, we um, went with Oracle Finance Cloud, which is a SaaS offering from Oracle for our finance system. Uh, the entire integration platform that I talked about and our analytics platform is all hosted within Amazon Web Services right now. We have um, a, a Kubernetes cluster that is available and is our future target for our application development and API and integration development um, efforts uh, because th that allows to take advantage of the economies of scale of public cloud. That's truly where you get the best cost for public cloud and where you make the argument that um, public cloud is actually less expensive is if you are taking advantage of, you know, public cloud architectures, which includes kind of more cloud native approaches to development. Um, and so, you know, we're, you know, all, the ESR program, all of the ESR deployments have been within a cloud. So we've made a significant transition already. Last time you're on the podcast, you're on with Cheryl and you were talking about your involvement in the LEAD Fellows Program uh, mm -hmm. and, and your involvement in the IT Services Inclusive uh, Excellence Initiative. How are those going uh, since we last spoke? They're going well. You know, um, the, the LEAD Program was excellent. It was, you know, I've been here over 17 years and have participated in a large number of you know UC sponsored programs, and I have to say this was probably the best one I ever did. What what made it the best one? Well, the 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 the, the content, of course, is something I'm very very interested in. Uh, the way it was run, I have to give the uh, the leaders of that program, which uh, that, that's um, Edwina Welch and Sean Travers, kudos for actually during COVID, they did the, we did the whole program via Zoom and we were able to act, you know, quite honestly, truly create a community focused on diversity and inclusive excellence, which was the main content of that program. Um, and this was 23 or 24 participants from all over the place. You know, there were faculty on, on this, you know, people like myself. I was the only person from IT. Um, we had a number of folks from our partners at Health in there. Um, we were able to, I learned a ton in this. I was able to, you know, create some new connections and relationships with people. Um, and I feel like um, I could contact any one of them if I 
was working on something and needed, you know, question answered or needed, you know, some help or something. And likewise, I would hope that they would come and ask me. There's a group within ITS right now that I'm part of, um, and that includes um, Chris Harris and Inez Hicks and James Seddon. And we've been trying to meet, you know, every few weeks, month, uh, and talk through um, an internal program for equity and inclusivity. And so we, we are chipping away at it and we're hoping to be able to get enough of this put together to actually launch the program soon. Let's wind down with some Brian get to know. Uh, this is great radio for the listeners, but as we're here on Zoom, I see the drum set Zoom background. What is your history with drums and percussion and, and uh, what are you still up to in that field? So I've been playing music in one form or another since I was in, I think it was first grade that I started, first or second grade. I started on the violin, which was probably not the right instrument to start on. Not nearly as cool. Not nearly as cool. And God, you know. God bless all the violinists out there. Violin and saxophone, like reed instruments like that. Those are probably the worst ones at the beginning, especially for your parents because the sound that comes out at the beginning is not that great. Anyway, I, I, I started there. I start, I picked up guitar probably when I was about eight, I think, and started playing guitar a little bit. And then by nine-ish, 10-ish, I was um, started playing the drums a bit. And so I played through you know, middle school, um, high school, and then decided to go to college. And I ended up taking two music degrees, a bachelor of music degree in percussion and a master of music degree in percussion. Um, and I was a professional musician for roughly 12 years. So that's all I did for a living. And I have, you know, I transitioned out of being a professional full-time musician. However, I've been playing ever since. I still play to this day. You know, I was in a couple groups before COVID. COVID kind of derailed the, the live music industry. You know, I played at Bella Vista a few times. I actually, one of, I think Mike McGill is now retired, but he's a guitarist and, and singer. I actually did a thing with him for the, um, uh, it's one of the charity uh, events that UC used to do. I can't remember which one. I, I can't remember which one it was. Um, so, like I said, I have this uh, the the picture, which I know people that have been on Zoom with me have seen it. That's my studio. That's at my house. Uh, I still have four drum sets. I play nearly every day for at least a little bit. Um, and now that things are hopefully loosening up, I'll probably start throwing some groups together again and keep keep going. Is, it's is like there a mob. This thing, like once you start doing this, you're not getting out. It's right? like Godfather Three. They keep pulling you back. Yeah. Well, is there is there a, a genre of music that you gravitated to in the professional days or even now? Well, when I started, you know, I was young and of course I was, you know, more interested in, um, you know, rock bands like Led Zeppelin and, and Rush and Black Sabbath. But I also, you know, I've been fairly uh, uh, broad in my, my interests. You know, I love the Beatles and in my music degrees, the focus was on percussion performance. So a lot of classical music. Mm -hmm. So I was playing, 
um, when I was playing professionally, I was playing in orchestras. I used to play for the Long Beach Ballet, the Santa Barbara Symphony, Santa Barbara Chamber Orchestra, uh, Long Beach Civic Light Opera, the Santa Barbara Civic Light Opera. Um, I did, you know, big bands on occasion, um, some small jazz groups. I played in um, 80s top 40 cover bands. Um, I've probably done, you know, a couple thousand gigs. Um, I've done some recording. I did some movie soundtrack recording. And now I've, you know, I've played with a couple, I would call cover bands. That's not my, my artistic interest. My artistic interest is more around improvisational music, like jazz things. So I mostly focus on, you know, jazz and um, other types of uh, improvisational things. Okay. That's amazing. Who's, who's in your family and what do you all enjoy doing together? Well, now we're, my wife and I, we are, you know, empty nesters. So it's just my wife, Athena, and myself at home. Uh, we have a 24-year-old son who is in Wisconsin with his girlfriend right now. Um, so we don't always do things together because we're a little far apart. Um, however, we did have them here uh, a couple weeks ago. I flew them out for a week for them to hang out. And, uh, you know, we, we hung out here together. My wife loves playing games. My wife uh, does, likes to do comedic improv stuff. So she actually leads comedy improv uh, classes. She was doing that pre-COVID. She's got a little group that they do that. So does that I'm, you know, I'm a, I love cooking. I've been cooking since I was a little kid. Uh, so I, we make food together and eat. We also, I paddleboard and paddle surf. So we took them out paddleboarding. Um, went and visited family. My, my dad lives up in um, Southern Huntington Beach. Uh, and he's, you know, he's in his mid eighties now. So we hang out with family, play music, get in the water, that sort of stuff. All right, those, those nuggets of wisdom notwithstanding. Um, last one here, what's something uh, you're willing to share about yourself that most co colleagues probably don't know? Well, so here's something that they might not. So my wife and I, we have, well, we haven't been able to travel much lately. We're avid travelers too. Um, so um, we had, I'll talk just two different trips that we took. So we went to India back in 2012, maybe, maybe it was 2011. Um, and we, one of the target places we wanted to go is a, a area in India called Ranthambore. And that's where there's a preserve um, uh, for the Bengal tigers. And so we went on a, a tour in an open Jeep and came across uh, three Bengal tigers that were about 15 feet away from us outside the Jeep. And so I have photos of them, um, which was quite spectacular. And they didn't eat us, so that was good. And then on a, on a subsequent trip that we took, um, we went to Rwanda specifically to track the mountain gorillas. Mm. So we were there for about five or six days. Um, we went up the mountain three times and that is an incredible experience if you are open to doing something like that because you go to the, the, the park, which is the place that coordinates the excursions. Um, and it's part of a state sponsored thing to preserve the gorillas. And you get assigned to a specific group. There were, when we were there, there were about 10 gorilla families that were up in the mountain. 
Um, and then you get in a car or truck, again, most of them are like SUVs that are off-road capable because the roads are sometimes a little uh, less than perfect. Um, and you drive anywhere from half hour to an hour and a half plus, park the car, grab all your gear, but you're, you're in groups of 10 or less, so they're small groups, and then you start hiking up the mountain. And two of the trips that we took up, um, we were uh, we were hiking for about two hours. And then you get to a place and they have trackers that are actually looking for the gorilla families because the gorilla families move around, right? Mm -hmm. They move around in the jungle. And so once they find the gorilla family, you stop, you drop your gear, grab your camera, you usually walk into some other part of the jungle into a clearing, right? You're up in the mountains, but it's all uncut jungle. Um, and you're surrounded by gorillas. And they did and not eat you either. They didn't eat us either. Um, but we we saw everything from small babies that were maybe 10 inches to a foot tall up to um, 350 plus pound silverbacks and almost everything in between. And when you go to the, the park, they give you some training and what to listen for, you know, listen for this, this is when they get agitated, listen for this, this is when they're okay. And they tell you, you're supposed to stay 20 feet away from them. However, you're in pretty tight jungle settings. And so trying to stay 20 feet is not easy. Um, in some cases, it's impossible. This one time there was a silverback that was maybe, maybe 20 feet away, but it was, um, you know, down toward my left and it got up and it started walking toward me and I had nowhere to go. So I backed up as much as I could, but I was up against the, the jungle where I was up against, you know, um, you know, plants and whatever else. So I backed up and I just sort of stood there and this silverback walked right by me and brushed my pant legs and then kept going, thank God, and left. But I have, I have a phenomenal set of photos from that trip, these guys. So that was uh, incredible. So some people know about that, but there's probably a lot of people that don't know about that. That's amazing. And Brian, thank you for joining us back on the current podcast. I sure hope you're enjoying this podcast. Remember to let your fellow IT services staff members know that this podcast exists. Get everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you can get your podcasts. This podcast is a collaborative effort, and we want to hear from you. If you have any ideas for podcasts or topics, send them to me at its-podcast at ucsd.edu. That's it for today. Keep an ear out for the next episode of The Current Daily.